This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, we're, we're going to talk about, everyone wants me to talk about the hurricane and why it, we got a hurricane without rain and just a hurricane without rain, just oceans, and why it seems to be that the trees took a much bigger hit than the human beings, for sure. Thousands of trees died. And uh, that's, Baruch Hashem, a lot of people did not die. Um, so why the trees took the hit and why there's so many dead fish uh, that if you go through, if you walk through Far Rockaway or, or the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the fish were like, what are we doing in the, bat- in the tunnel? They all died. A lot of fish died in the tunnel. They didn't have an easy pass, just a joke. But anyway, it's not funny. So there's, there's some, a lot of people sent me pictures of, of their houses with a lot of dead fish in front of their houses. So why would fish, why would Hashem kill fish? Even in the mobble, the fish were saved. The only thing that didn't die were the fish. So that's, uh, that's something what? Ah, you think that's who the fish were? Could be. Um, but they did a mitzvah, they ate our virus, so why would they have to die? Anyway, we, we, there's many mafarshim on why a mobble, why, why water comes to the world in a destructive force. And Mitchem next week, um, just putting them all together. And um, we have to understand that this was definitely a huge message because it was Shalei Kedera Chateva. If it happened in Miami, okay, it's Kedera Chateva. Maybe it's not a message because they get five, eight, ten hurricanes, you know, from the summer till the fall. But New York doesn't get hurricanes. And everyone, all the weather forecasts said that everything had to be absolutely perfect to come together to make a, a, a storm surge. The, 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 the destruction came from the ocean. It didn't come from Shemayim, it came from the earth. It came from the ocean. Everything that was destroyed was water from the ocean. So we'll have to talk about um, why this would happen to us. Um, and, and it was a disaster of major, you know, forget about technology, who cares about that? But there are many Jewish people in Far Rockaway and in the five towns and, and Seagate and all over the place that lost their homes, shuls that totally destroyed. You'll never be able to use them again. Shifrei Torah that were destroyed. That got waterlogged. Svarim that were floating around um, down the street. This is a huge message from God. This is not a simple little thing, you know, some rain. So uh, we have to look at, we, you know, if we don't learn from the one message, which we had last year, and the other hurricane, which wasn't so bad, so then we get a, a, a hurricane a year later, which is worse, chas v'shalom. So we as the Jews, as the soul of the world, have to look into ourselves and try to figure out what's going on, what's the message. I think I know the message. And it's Hashem, next week we'll talk about it. Um, again, we don't, you never know the message, but I know the message that I got from it. Because um, I'll tell you, it's just very interesting, something that I heard this past week on Chavez, which absolutely floored me. How could it be that from the ten generations from Noah to Avraham, right, were even worse than the ten generations from Adam to Noah, they were Nimrod made himself a god. They were when Noah was still alive and his kids were still alive that were in the table. So it's not that you can say they don't believe in God. They don't believe the stories happened four thousand years ago. Red Wallstein, how do you know what happened? Maybe it never happened. Noah was there. Shame Chum and Yafes were there. So how could the people not believe in God? They they watched the world be destroyed. And the people that watched the world be destroyed were still alive. So, how could those ten generations go off to Derech? Right? You can walk into Shul and say, Noah, were you in the Mabu? Yes. Was the whole world destroyed? Yes. Were you saved? Yes. Can I see the Teva? Yes. It's in my backyard. You can see the Teva. So how could those people become not believe in Hashem very strong question 10 generations from Noah to Avram were bad news how could that be imagine Moshe Rabbeinu was alive and you could see him and you could talk to him and of course everyone's going to believe that there were 600,000 Jews at, at Har Sinai Moshe Rabbeinu was there and he's I'm there and I was there when it happened so the Teretz is amazing the Teretz is who messed up all the genera- all of those ten generations, Og. Og, we know from last week's parsha, when the four kings went to fight the five kings, it says, well, Yavai ha-pa- ha-polet. The pollet came and he told Avram, 
that Lot was captured. Says Rashi, who was the pilot? Og. So that means that Og lived all ten generations from Noach, because he was on the table, to Avram. He was the one that was behind that nobody should believe in God. What did he say? He said the following. It says in the, in the Torah that you want to believe in that whoever went in the Teva would be saved. Whoever didn't go in the Teva would die. That's what Hashem said. I wasn't in the Teva. I was on the Teva. I wasn't in the Teva. And I was saved. Must be there is no God. Because God said... Whoever's in the table is going to be saved. But if you're out of the table, you won't be. I am living proof. He was the opposite. I am living proof. Yes, there was, a, there was a huge hurricane and a huge flood. And everybody died. And whoever was in the boat was saved. But God was nature. Let's do it, God. How do you know it wasn't God? Because God said, whoever's in the table will be saved. Hey, I'm living proof there's no God. I wasn't in the table and I was saved. And that's what he preached. And he lived all ten generations. And therefore, nobody believed in God. Now, what's interesting about this is that what he should have been saying, Og, was it's unbelievable. Because the last second I believed in God and I believed what Noah was saying, that there'd be a marvel. Because of that, I got onto the table and Hashem forgave me because in the end of the day, a second before the marvel started, I showed that I had to be tachon, and God is unbelievable. Everybody had to be in the table to be saved. But me, because I believed in him, he saved me. He, he should have done just the opposite. He should have been preaching that God is real. But if you want to be an og, and you don't want to follow in the ways of Hashem, then he turned around the whole thing. He said, just the opposite. I don't believe in God because God said, supposedly, that you had to be in the table. I wasn't in the table. He was the one that was behind the whole ten generations. He started. It's like you give a share, and then there's one person that gets up, a little son, and makes a joke, and then nobody believes the share anymore. And it happens. I had a famous story called the um, the red light story. The red light story is one of my most famous stories that I say. It it's it's from what I know of all the stories I've ever said in my life. Probably made the most um, did the most kirov and made the most about truth of any story I've ever said. It's a very unbelievable story where a girl is getting married to a guy, a Jewish girl is getting married to a guy on Shabbos and ends up through the whole, at the end of the story, she gets married to her of Aula Chassid in Mer Sharam. It's a crazy story. And, and I say it very often. Um, and everyone's getting emotional because it's a very emotional story. And they're like, it's the whole thing with God and Shemayim. It's, it's a crazy story. So I told the story in the five towns one time, a group of women. And when I finished the story, there were women that were crying. There were women like, oh my God, the story changed my life. But there were these five women who came up, who, after the class, everybody was like, what, what a speech, what a, what a, it's unbelievable. And these five women are like, we don't believe the story, you made it up. I was like, I made it up? Yeah, you made it up, it can't be true. I'm like, first of all, I didn't make it up. And second of all, it's true. What makes you say that it's not true? Well, you said in the beginning of the story that when she was going to marry Vinny, right, she was wearing her wedding gown. That's true. And that whole story happened on Shabbos, and because she did something on Shabbos, she was saved. So she made up her mind that for the rest of her life, when she became from, she went to Nevei, she ended up in Meisharim, that when she became from, she would always light her Shabbos candles in her wedding gown. Because she wanted to remember she found Hashem on Shabbos, in her wedding gown, on her way to church. So that was her minute. And these seminary girls that went to the house, they said, oh, the whole story, whatever it was. So when I told the story, I said that, you know, these seminary girls were standing there when she, in the house, they were there for Shabbos, when she lit candles, so she had her three little sons, three little kids with payas, and her three little daughters were all standing there, and they were all davening, and it was such a beautiful scene. So this woman says, you know how I know it's not true? There's no way there's no way if she had six children that she could fit in her wedding gown. <laughs> serious story. It's a serious story. So my whole schmooze, my whole share that was so powerful went out the window. Everybody started saying, yeah, how could she fit into her wedding gown? 
It had nothing to do with the story. It was no, not a point that had anything to do with anything. But these women didn't want to believe that a person could change so much, so they had a problem with their wedding gown. So now when I tell the story, I tell because I don't want people to think that way. So I tell the story that when she was going to marry Vinny, she was a size two. And now she took out the dress because she had to make it sneeze anyway. And she took it out. And if it makes you happy, she's a size nine. Now, there, there is no such thing as a size nine. So I use that size. So nobody should say, what? After you have six kids, you have to be a size this. I use a size nine that, that's the point of the story? What the size of her dress was? That means the whole story is not true? It's like you tell a story and, 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 you, and, the, and, the, and the house was blue. And you tell this crazy story. Everybody's crying. And when you end it, you're like, and Baruch Hashem, she closed the door, walked into her life, turned around, and waved goodbye to her house that was red. <laughs> right? So I mixed up the colors. Finished. The whole story is not true. You said blue. Now you said red. That means the whole thing is, is false. And the whole thing goes out the door. Same thing with Oak. Oak said, you said you have to be in the Teva. I wasn't in the Teva. That's why we learn in Pasha Shemos, in Shemos, not in Pasha Shemos, but in Shemos, when Hashem said, I'm going to bring the Maka of Makis Bechoros, Hashem said, it will happen Kichatzi Halayla. Around midnight. Says Rashi, why didn't he say at midnight? Hashem, when he says something, he knows what he's saying. Because if it would be one second before midnight, or one second after midnight, even though every Bukhar died, they would say, it's not Hashem. Hashem said exactly midnight. It's not exactly midnight. So that's what he did, Og. Og took the fire, took the fire out of the whole thing that happened in the Mabo. He took the fire out of it. So, we're going to talk next week about this hurricane. And I've been very busy in my svarim, and I found some very interesting things about hurricanes and about when the sea gets, when the, Hashem uses the sea to punish the human being. And with Hashem, we'll, we'll take a look at it. But we definitely have to think about what just happened. It's, it's, I mean, I love, I, I can't, I'm not going to say I love it because there was so much destruction, but I loved it. Why did I love it? Because I'm the big anti-technology guy. And, <laughs> and look what happened. Look what happened. Airports closed down. You can't go through the tunnel. The tunnel right now is full of fish. No, no, I'm not kidding. It's full of fish. Poor fish, but whatever. So the whole, the whole Manhattan from like 30th Street down, right, including the village, which had to be cleaned out a bit, um, is out of electricity. Is out, is out of electricity. So man's electricity lights. I haven't been able to use my cell phone in the last two days. It works one out of 20 times you try to dial. So cell phones went down. All of human technology, all of our great wisdom, billions of dollars, the stock market, they were saying that, that if there was a nuclear war, that the stock market, because it drives all the financial markets of the world, if there was a nuclear war, that they have a room downstairs, right, that they, the, the market has to go on. Hashem said, really? Some ocean water, and the market's closed for two days. And internet, people were dying. Why? Because electricity went off. People who don't have electricity, their batteries on their apples only work for three hours. And they have no way to recharge it. I'm not saying it's a good thing. People are suffering. But what a lesson. Hashem's like, I'm going to give you a little splash. A little splash. I'm not going to drown anybody. I'm going to give you a little splash. And all your technology, your cars, in Farakaway, there were cars floating down the road. Floating down the road. Your cars are done. Your bridges are done. Your tunnels are done. Your electricity is done. So what are you, human being? A little salt water? A little sneeze? And everything's out? And the airplanes are done? 8,000 flights? Nothing! In the air you don't work. In the subways you don't work. On the ground you don't work. Nothing's working, Hashem is saying. With all your advanced technology, you're still just human beings. And if I want to take it out, I'll take it out. And... NYU had it's a terrible thing that happened generators you think you're going to generators are going to get around it generators got flooded everything got flooded and, how, and we didn't get any rain Shem had big Rachmanis had we had rain together with the ocean surge have a good day it would, be a, it would have been a lot of death he, didn't, he sprinkled a little rain on us there was no rain 
a hurricane without rain, which is as unusual as the whole hurricane. Because a hurricane dumps, I was in one in Florida, dumps sheets of rain. No rain, I think a half an inch, nothing. It was the oceans. It was a surge, which came out, which came out in full moon, which came out in the worst tide. So it was totally ocean. And what does the moon represent, everybody? Kleistral. The moon represents Kleistral. The reason there was an ocean surge, they said straight up, was because it was the it was an eight foot tide. Had it been in the beginning of the month, very nothing would have been flooded. So a hurricane with no rain on the worst night of the of the month, as far as the moon is concerned, for tide, and the chutzpah of television stations having people call in and say why they think the hurricane happened. 55% of the people in New York say it happened because of Mother Nature. 45% of the people in New York State say it happened due to the changes of the season. And 5% say it just happened. Things happen. Luck. Bad luck. Not one person said God sending a message, except one preacher who got up for the last few days, who's been preaching like a wild man, that the earth is being, the human being is being punished for voting that gay marriage is legal. And he's been screaming about this. And of course, everyone's marching, the whole liberal world is marching against him. But he keeps talking. He's got his followers, and he keeps talking. You sinners. Man has become sinners. God is going to wash all you sinners away. This guy's like, wow, whatever. But you know what? We have to learn a lesson. It's a lesson to Kleistral, that's for sure. Maybe we need to protest a little bit within ourselves about what's happening in the world. Because the last time there was a marble, the last time there was a flood, and you want to hear something even scarier? Yesterday, right after the storm stopped, I got many, many phone calls from people at Wallstein. There's a huge rainbow. Right after, the huge, they took pictures of it. A huge rainbow. We know that a rainbow means really, I, I really, if it wasn't for my promise, I would have destroyed the world. So right after, there was a rainbow. So Kushbok was screaming, and he's so kind. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it out on trees. By the way, trees are called, in, in the Zayar, Trees are humans. They're, they're considered like humans because we are called the eights hasada. We are called the trees of the in, 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 in Kabbalah. A human being is called a tree because we are like trees. We have fruits and we give like a tree gives. And really, what took the beating this whole hurricane by much more than human beings or anybody else were the trees. They got ripped out all over the place. Thousands and thousands of trees. Akadosh was screaming. He's like, "I'm taking it out on trees. I'm taking it out on houses. I'm taking it out on cars." I think twelve people died. Twelve people too many. But according to what else happened, there should have been a lot more. And Hashem is a bal rachamim, and he keeps sending messages. And Irene was a bad hurricane, and Sandy got even worse. And nobody's learning. They're sending in to the TV program that this happened because of Mother Nature. So we can't. We can't miss that. We can't miss the. Picture it. Every single person has to protest within themselves um, what's going on. And if you protest, that's all. I was sitting in seminary today, so we were talking, and um, one of the girls said, "You can't. You know, you can protest all you want. You're not going to change the the liberal America. You're not going to change anything. So what's going to be the use of protesting?" So I explained to her that that. There were three advisors. Paro, Paro had three advisors. I was thinking today when I saw those pictures, that's what it looked like in Mitzrayim, where it says that when the Nile turned into blood and it overflowed its banks, when it went back, Mitzrayim was full of dead fish. That's what it says. The Russian is, dead fish smelled. Mitzrayim smelled from dead fish. Dead fish were all over the roads. When I saw these pictures of all these dead fish all over the place, I'm like, with Mamash Maka, we went through a Maka. A lot of destruction. A lot of people are homeless. I mean, Baruch Hashem and Flatbush, we have lights and homes, but there, there, there are homes in Seagate from people that they went into the ocean. There's no home left. Zero. Go to their house, there's nothing there. There are people in Far Rockaway. There are people in Five Towns. I was supposed to speak tonight in the Five Towns and tomorrow night. 
and the shul that I was supposed to speak in, forget it. It's flooded all the way in, in the whole shul. There's no one to speak. There's farmer, farmer floating around. Farmer floating around. It's crazy. It's crazy what happened. So we have, we have to protest within ourselves that we're not happy. Hashem, I'm not happy for you. I'm not happy what's going on in this world. I'm not happy all the atheism, which is my, next week we're going to have a whole group of girls that are coming um, because I am in the midst of a huge debate with a, a Jewish girl who's extremely bright, who's, a, uh, who's, who's an atheist, who's part of a group called J-O-T-D. I said, what's that? She said, Jews off the derech. <laughs> You're laughing. They have a whole group. They meet. They go out to eat. And all they talk about is there's no God. And that the whole thing is made up. And then there's another group here in Flatbush. I forgot their name. They're also, well, actually it's a Williamsburg group that teaches this to kids, whatever it is. A very famous group. So so I'm dealing with her and we're going back and forth. And um, Baruch Hashem, I blew her, all her stuff out the, out the window. And I actually proved God. Now, there has to be a little bit of Muna and you believe in God. I took that away. I said, you don't have to have any Muna. I will prove to you that there's a God. The Muna, once there's a God, what God does, you can have a Muna. But I can prove to you that there's a God. And she said, no. And of course, I, I did Baruch Hashem. And um, I did it with a, with a young man also, who the day I did it, put, a yarmulke, put actually my yarmulke on his head. <laughs> and um, it's a true story. So I was asking girls from different schools how do you know there's a God? How do you know there's a Hashem? And they, they, they couldn't answer. They couldn't answer. No, only the insurance company says act of God because they don't pay for act of God. That's the only one. Right, the only one that says act of God is the insurance company because they don't have to pay for act of God. Also, God showed up. You know what I mean? God showed up. It's time to pay insurance. No, act of God. No, we don't have to pay you. Whatever. It is. Mother Nature. They don't give it. They don't give. They don't give it to God. They give it to Mother Nature. Mama Nature. Okay. Anyway, so I got into this whole thing with these girls who are, who are very firm girls, and none of them could tell me how they know there's a God. I said, you have to believe. I said, if you, once you're believing, you can believe in anything. If it's just belief. I said, you don't know, you can't prove that if someone asked you, you can't prove there's Hashem. No. How do you know you have a Nishama? I don't know. How do you know there's a next world? Nobody ever came back and said, I've been there. How do you know? You're told. Okay. So that, so they'll tell you, and, and if you go to college outside, you go to Brooklyn, go to Brooklyn College, or, there's no proof. There's no proofs. And you don't know the proof yet. I promise you don't know the proof. But I'll tell you something. They'll tell you, believe. You believe, right? So the Muslims will tell you, how many Jews are religious Orthodox Jews in the world that believe in God? Two million? There's eight million Jews. Two million are Orthodox, if that much, right? So you have eight million Jews that, let's say all of them believe there's a God. They don't, but let's say they do. We have four billion. So it's easier to fool eight million than four billion. So four billion of us believe, so we're much more believable than you are. You have eight million people walking around saying, we believe this. And then on the other side of the table, you have four billion people. He said, it's much easier to fool eight million than four billion. And the Christians have 12 billion. I don't know what they have. Right? So... If you're going to go to college and that, you're going to tell that to a Muslim, he's going to tell you, you only got a small bunch of, you know, we can, they can only sell you the Torah thing to a small bunch of you. But us, we have the real belief. We have the most people believing. So how do we really know? Mishem, next week, I'm giving a share specifically on how do you know there's a God? How do you know that you have a soul? And how do you know that there's a next world? Not that you believe that there's a next world, but you know there's a next world. You know you have a soul. And you know, I will prove to you that there's a God. I can't prove to you who the God is and what he's made out of, and I don't need to prove that. I just need to prove that there is a God. After that, yes, it's a Muna. But after that, once you know that there is a God, and that you're not a God, and that he can do a lot more than you can, then you don't really know, need to know much more about him. The goldfish doesn't need to know what you got in, in school, or who your, what your mother looks like, right? Or even how many kids you have, the goldfish needs to know one thing. Then when that hand comes over the tank, there's going to be food coming down. So when I had goldfish, and I fed them every day, the minute my hand, I put it on top, even if I didn't have food, I just put it on top, they all went swimming up. Why? Because they know this hand feeds them. After that, they don't need to know how much I weigh. They don't need to know 
if I'm a good ball player or not. They don't need to know what I got on my spelling test. They don't need to know anything else. And if they want to know, they'll die. Because the goldfish wants to know what's going outside the, 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 the aquarium. He has to jump out. When he jumps out, right, he's like, wow, look at that. Yeah, he's, you know, this beautiful goldfish tank, and it's right in the dining room. And he sees everybody sitting down, and they're having a salad, and they're having a steak, and they're having soup, and a glass of wine. And he's like, why should I live in this little aquarium? I also want a steak. So he jumps out. And he dies. Because his world is not eating that steak. His world is fish food. If he's going to try to use, eat human food, he's going to be dead. And if he's living in the ocean and he wants to jump onto a boat so that he could be in the world of air and the human world, he's going to be a filter fish or somebody's dinner. So you need to, you need to live and understand where you're at. There was this girl that went to my Rebbe, Rebbe Gamliel, and he, she asked him, could you read my palm? And I was sitting there. So he happens to, he happens to be able to, but he doesn't do that. He's not a palm reader. So he said, why do you want me to read your palm? And she said, I'd like to know my Gilgal, what I was last time I was here. And he said, when you figure out this time why you're here, then we'll talk about last time while you're here. Is this? <laughs> no, I guess we lost it, right? Okay. Anyway, so Hashem, that's my share next week. Hashem should give us health. We shouldn't have any more hurricanes, volcanoes, or earthquakes. And Mitzvah Hashem will be here. We'll be here next week. Or tsunamis, right? We'll be here next week. And I think it's very important that you're all here because it's something that that um, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave me this matana to figure this out and and learn about it. And I think that every person needs it. And you'll walk out of the room very different, very different, knowing for sure that there's a God. Not way past believing, but knowing. But again, you have to have at the end of the day. There's still parts that you have to have a Muna because that's what Hashem wants you to have. But we're going to prove it next week. All right. So let's just talk a little bit about this week for a couple of minutes and then we'll let you go. Baruch Hashem, they didn't turn off the electricity tonight. So let's talk about the visit of the three Malachim. And then I'll tell you a new story that I just saw this week also. So the Malachim come to Abraham Avinu this week. And there are three malachim with four jobs. Everyone knows this question. A malach, when he leaves Shemayim, he has one job. So, there was saving Lot, destroying Sodom, telling Sarah she's going to have a child, and healing Avram. That's four jobs. There were three malachim. Rafal, Gabriel, Michal. So, why didn't Hashem send, he had thousands of angels, why didn't Hashem send a fourth angel? So the answer to that is that really Lot was not supposed to be saved. Lot was living with Sodom. Lot was not doing the right thing. He should have been killed. The reason he was saved was only one reason. Because from him came Moab, from Moab came Rus, from Rus came David Amelech, from David Amelech comes Mashiach ben David. That's why he was saved. Now, when Hashem sent the Malach and the angels down, there was no reason to save him. Why? Because there's a, a law in the Jewish, in, in, in Halacha, in the laws of that, you're not allowed to marry a person from Moab. Because when the Jews went past Moab, they weren't given anything to eat. By Moab, they weren't given anything to drink. Hashem said, I don't want in your DNA, in your spiritual DNA, that you should be a kind of person that someone who comes to eat and drink, you don't give them. I don't want Moab marrying into the Jewish nation, period. Now, what happened, when the Malachim came, which happens to be a big thing in, in Shalom Bayez, just an interesting Rashi, when the Malachim came to Avram Avinu, they asked him the following question. Aye, Sarah, Ishtecha. Where is Sarah, your wife? Because the whole time, Yishmael and Avram were serving them. Now, normally a woman comes out and serves, she makes the food, she serves you. So they were like, where's the woman of the house? You're bringing us all the food. What kind of lady do you, who are you married to? She doesn't give us any food. So Abraham Avinu said, uh, my house is a little different, my wife's a little different. She's a tznua. She's very modest. And it's not sneistic for a woman to serve strange men who she doesn't know. They're going to start looking at her body. 
They're going to stop flirting with her. So Sarah was a very big snua. So he's, when they said, Aye, sorry, Ishtacha, he answered by Yerimeh, Hirema Ohel. She's not coming out here. She's in the tent. She's in the house. So they told her next year at this time, they told Avram, Sarah's going to have a child. Sarah heard it because she was standing, Shema's Pesach Ohel Vuhu Achrov. She never walked into the room. She heard it from outside the door because she was at Snua. So what happened here? Avraham, when they asked him, where's your wife? He paskened the halacha. He said, a woman is not supposed to serve men. Therefore, she is in the tent. When he paskened that halacha, so whatever we paskened in this world, they paskened in the other world. So when she paskened that halacha, all of a sudden the women of Moab didn't do anything wrong. Because they weren't supposed to, according to Abraham Avinu, they were never supposed to come out and serve. That's not a woman's place. So the ones that did wrong by not giving the Jews to eat or drink were the men. So now that he passed in that halacha, so a Moavi woman could marry into the Jewish nation because she didn't do anything wrong. She wasn't supposed to come out, according to Abraham Avinu. So that allowed Rus, who was from Moab, to marry Boaz and have a grandchild, David. So, when the Malachim were sent down to this world, they had three jobs. Destroy Saddam, give a refor shalema to Avraham Avinu, and tell Sarah. They were done, they'd finished, they were ready to go back to Shemayim. Avraham paskined that a woman should not be serving. A woman should not be serving, so the Malach that was there now got a new shlichus. Because now, you should save Lot. So he went to save Lot. So the basis of where Rus came from, that she could marry into Boaz, came from who? Sari Imenu, by being a tznua, by being modest and not serving men. Because of that, we allowed Rus to join the Jewish nation. So the basis of Rus's whole existence came from Sarah being a tznua, Sarah being modest. Therefore, even though she came from the worst nation in the world, the most immoral nation, which was Moab, they caused, they went out and prostituted themselves to the Jewish nation in the Abbas Moab. And because of that, 24,000 Jewish men died in a, in a Magefa, right? So they were hated by the Jews. And they were the lowest moral of any nation in the world. So where did Rus who was only recognized by Boaz as being different because she curtsied when she picked up the wheat. She didn't bend over. And he said, who is this snua? Who is this girl? That she's so modest. Where did that modesty come from? Thousands and thousands of years before from her great, 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 great grandmother, Sari Menu, who was a snua. <coughs> that midah, if a person is modest, carries down to all the generations. So now look, let's look what happened. So Lot goes up into the mountains, the world is destroyed, and the oldest of his daughters says to her sister, the world is destroyed. There's no men, there's no women, there's no children. All that's left is me and you and our father. If we're not going to have children with our father, then my father's going to die, then we're going to die, and that's it. The world's over. That's what they really thought. Says them Farshim, so they did a chesed. They did a big chesed to the world. They got their father drunk, and the oldest daughter became pregnant from her father, and she called the child Moav, which stands for Me'avi, from my father. Which doesn't make any sense. Why would you name a child such a terrible name? Wherever he's walking, right? What's your name? Moavi. Oh, you're from that ancestral relationship, the father and the daughter. Ugh. You're like, ugh. Why would a mother... You know, it's like naming your child stupid. Right? Your name is Stupid Schwartzberg. You're going to walk around and everyone's like, what's your name? Stupid. Why would a mother do that to a child? So why would she, right, was disgraceful, so to say, what she did, everywhere this guy's going is Mayavi. So there were people who used to make fun of what these, of what happened over here. Now, Moshe Feinstein, all of a shalom, writes in his Sefer, that there was a man in his shul that used to always make fun of the daughters of Lot and that he told the rabbi, I don't want to ever get an aliyah, called up to the Torah about that story. It's a disgusting story. And how could this woman name her son such a disgusting name? 
he had a dream, this man, he came to Ramesha Feinstein, and he told him that he had a dream. In his dream, the two daughters of Lot came to him in the dream. They introduced themselves. We are the daughters of Lot that you always make fun of. And we want you to know, gather your family together, because within a week, you will die. Your tongue will swell up, who spoke Lashon Hara about us, and you will not be able to breathe, and you will die. And he went to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and he told Rabbi Moshe Feinstein about the dream. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said, I can't help you. And on his deathbed, as his tongue was totally swollen, whatever it is, he asked Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, he said he saw them, and they're waiting for him, and he's got to get it over his head, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein should dive for him. And Moshe Feinstein said the following. So what did he do wrong? He was saying, it's a terrible story, and how could this woman name her child Meavi for my father? So Moshe said that he was because the reason she named the child Meavi was she knew that if she doesn't, people are going to say, this girl would never be with her father. It's the Immaculate Conception. She went up into a cave, God came, made her pregnant like Mary in the other religion, and she had an Immaculate Conception. And this child is from God. So she said, I don't want anyone to start a religion and make up that I got pregnant from God. So I'm naming my child Me'avi. He is from my father. No stories about God coming to the world and getting me pregnant. No Christianity. That's not the story. So she did it for the right reason. She did it so no one should have to show them say that Hashem did this, this whole thing came from Hashem. So she named him Me'avi, that wherever you see him, you should know that he's from my father. And you were Chayshim B'Kshayim? You were walking around saying, how could she do that? She's going to pay a big price for it. Now the chesed that they did, because they were wrong. The world was not destroyed. But from their vantage point of the cave, they saw all the fire and the smoke. They thought the world was destroyed. So they did a biggest chesed. So the, the Medrash says, because they did this chesed, because they did it totally the same Shemayim, that the world shouldn't be destroyed, they had this chus, that from Moab would come the grandmother of David HaMelech. That was a payment back to them. Mida connected Mida. You saved the world, or you thought you did. You did it for the right reason, to save the world. From you will come the real child that will really save the world. Mashiach Pendav. So the Mida connected Mida. You wanted to save the world. The world didn't need saving. You just thought that because that's what you saw. But when the world will need saving, it will come from the daughter of Lot. And not from the second daughter. The second daughter was Ammon. The child from that was Ammon. And nothing comes from Ammon. But from the first daughter. Because the first daughter did it with Shem Shemayim. The second daughter was already a copycat. Wasn't on the same level as the first daughter. First daughter did it totally to do chesed in the world. Hashem paid her back. That from her, from the mother of Moab, down the line will come Rus, who will be the grandmother of David, who will be Mashiach ben David, will come out from him. So even though they made a mistake, but since the machshava, the thought of what she wanted to do was correct, from her came came this child. But the point that I want to make tonight is the Ayei Sarah Ishtacha. Every woman has to know what to answer to that question. When Hashem says, Ayei Miriam, where are you? Where is she? And the correct answer is, Hine Ba'ayhel. Now, all women livers will hate what I'm saying. Oh, the woman has to be in the kitchen? Right? Right, Wallstein, you're, you're, you're prehistoric. You know, a brother said she's in the kitchen. Every woman, we have to lock ourselves in the kitchen. No education. We can't get out. We can't go out into the world. Wrong. She was a tznuah, but she knew more what was going on in the world than Avram Avinu who was out there. How do you know that? Who knew that Yishmael was taking Yitzchak down and making him do the wrong things? Avram didn't know it. Sari Menu came to Avram and said, do you know what Yishmael is doing to my son? And he was like, no, leave him in the house, he's not really doing anything. He went to Hashem, Hashem said, she knows more than you. 
throw him out. She knows what she's talking about. I, she's Ba'ohel. How does she know what's going on in the field? There's a time to be out. And there's a time to know stuff. But when there's strange men in the house, you have to be Ba'ohel. When you go to work, in the workplace, and men want to talk to you, you have to be Hine Ba'ohel. It's not a place to talk to anybody. When you're going out in the street, whatever it is, you have to be Hine Ba'ohel. You have to, you have to know what's going on in the world, but you have to be a Tznua. And, and, and if you, Rashi says that the Malachim knew where she was, what they ask him for? They're angels. They knew where she was, Ba'ayel. They wanted him to hear himself saying, my wife is a tznuah. So they did it because they wanted the shvach, the praise of his wife, that he should hear it himself by saying the praise himself. So there are three times in the Torah that Hashem asked, where are you? The first time was after Adam ate from the tree. Hashem said, Ayeka, where are you? What was the question? Hashem didn't know where, where Adam was? He knew exactly where Adam was. He was saying, okay, so you wanted to eat from the tree because you wanted to be like God. So now you ate from the tree, Ayeka. So where did he get you? Where are you now? Are you God? Are you smarter? Are you better? Do you feel better about yourself? Ayeka. So now where are you? It wasn't where are you physically. It was Ayeka. Where are you? So what'd you gain? So now you watch another four movies? You have another 900 friends on Facebook? Ayeka, so what? So what do you have? First time Hashem asked Ayeka. Not good. It was not a good Ayeka. The second time Hashem asked was he asked Cain, a Hevel. Where's Hevel? Hashem knew where Hevel was. But he wanted Cain to admit what he did wrong because when you tell someone they did something wrong, they don't own that they did something wrong. When they tell you they did something wrong, that means they're ready to repent. They're not denying that they did wrong. So Hashem asked. Hashem asked. The same thing about Adam. He said, how do you know you're not dressed? How do you know this? How do you know? He didn't say, I know you ate from the Yitzhak Das. He let Adam admit it. When someone admits it, then it becomes theirs. He didn't say, how did, why did you kill Havel? He didn't say that. He said, where is Havel? You tell me where Havel is. It was also very derogatory. He just murdered his brother. The first time that somebody was asked in the Torah, where are you? That it was positive was by Avraham Avinu and the Malachim. Where they said, tell us, where is she? And he proudly said, she's Ba'el, she's a Tznuah. And that's where David HaMelech comes from. Because if she wasn't Ba'el and a Tznuah, then Lot would never have been saved. There would have been no Rus, there would have been no Lot, there would have been no Moav, there would have been nothing. It all came from being a Tznuah, from being modest. Who else knew what was going on outside more than their husband Rivka Rivka knew that Esau wanted to kill Yitzchak kill Yaakov so she said get out go to my brother get out of here because he's going to kill you and I don't want to lose the two of you Yitzchak, did, Yitzchak didn't know that she knew what Esau was all about Yitzchak didn't know what Esau was all about so Rivka was also a tznua but when it came to the things that she needed to know she knew it it's not like putting a woman in a closet that's not what we're looking to do but when it comes to other men you have to be a tznu, you have to be ba'ohel. Oh, you can't mix with them. You can't even serve them. It's not, it's not theistic. But being in the world and knowing what's going on, Rivka knew what was going on. Rachel was the one who stole the, the, her father's idols. Yaakov didn't steal it. She knew what was going on. Leah knew what was going on. She knew that Asa was the one that was supposed to marry her. All the Imahais knew what was going on. Yehudis knew what was going on in Hanukkah. All of them, all of them. Devorah knew what was going on. Miriam, Miriam knew what was going on. She put her parents back together again. They all knew what was going on. They were all very much attached to the world. But when it came to men, when it came to tznias, he named Ba'el. The person has to be Ba'el. So I want to end off with an amazing story. I never said it before <coughs> because I saw it this week. So this is a story, this is a book, right? It happens to be a very fascinating book. It's called Aravlevi Yitzhak Abaditchev. He was known to be the protector of Klai Yisrael. No matter what he saw in Klai Yisrael, he saw the good in it. So this is an unbelievable story. It has to do with Tznius, and he says the following. So it was Slichas, we say, the week before Rosh Hashanah. So it was Slichas night in Bedichev. And Rav Levi Yitzchak felt that there's a very bad zera, a very bad decree, that Bedichev is going to be wiped out. So, he comes to Slichus, and he stands in front of the Arnach Kodesh, and he has a very bad feeling. So, he tells everybody, tomorrow I want you to go home, 
I want you to daven. I want you to say the whole Tehillim. I want you to fast. I want you to learn. We have to break this Gezerah. So they all, the whole city was very nervous. Rabbi Levi Yitzhak says there's a Gezerah, there's a Gezerah. And they daven and they learned and they fasted. And Slichus is the whole week till Rosh Hashanah. It comes, it comes the night before Rosh Hashanah. And the last Slichus, the big Slichus of Erev Rosh Hashanah. And he feels like the Gezerah, after everything they did, Gezerah is still there. But Dichip is going to be destroyed this year. He doesn't know what to do. So, they're all waiting to start Slichus. And he says, we can't start Slichus. I have to go find out how to break this Gezerah. So he calls his Gabai. He says, let's go into the city. Let's see if we can find a Tzadik or a Tzadikista that will help us break the Gezerah. So they go into the city. And they go from house to house to house. It's a very cold night. I don't know where Bedichev is, but I think it's in Russia. Um, it's whatever it is. It's very cold. And he goes from house to house to house. And he can't, he can't get rid of this terrible feeling that they're about to get all wiped out. He comes to a little house, a hut, the edge of the city. So he knocks on the door. And you know, he tells, he tells the Gabai, I feel there's a glow, there's a warmth coming out of this house. Some, some, someone holy is in this house. So he tells the Gabai, knock on the door. The Gabai knocks on the door. He turns to the Rebbe. He says, I don't know what you feel, but the door is ice cold. He says, just let's wait and see. The door opens up. An old, old lady <coughs> opens the door. Very poor. And she sees her lady Yitzchak. She was part of the town. And she's like, oh my God, you, 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 found, you found out about my sin. And you're coming here because you're angry at me. He says, what are you talking about? She says, she says, I can't give you anything to eat. I don't have any food. I'm very poor. And I know why you're here. You found out. I know you have Ruch HaKodesh and you found out about my terrible sin that I did. <clears throat> Can you help me? Do, do tshuva. He says, tell me what your sin is. So she says the following. She says, when I was a very little girl, seven, eight years old, my parents were, there was a plague and both my parents died. And my uncle and aunt took me in. And my uncle and aunt had a bar, had an inn, where they used to serve all the Polish peasants, you know, to drink. And they were a bunch of drunk lowlifes. So my uncle told me never to walk into that tavern. Because it's not a place for a girl. These are all lowlifes. She said, and I grew up, and I never walked into the tavern. And when I was 14 years old, my aunt needed money very desperately. So she sent me to the tavern to go to the tavern to pick up money for my uncle. She said, I had, I was 14 at that time, and I had beautiful, beautiful, long blonde hair. And I was very into my hair. I, you know, was, I'm a 14-year-old teenager, and I used to brush my hair, and I used to make it beautiful, and I had beautiful blonde hair. And I come to the inn, and I walk in, and there are a bunch of drunks and lowlife sitting around drinking, whatever it is. And as I'm walking across the tavern to my uncle, one of the men sitting there grabs my hair. And he puts his hands in my hair and he holds my hair. And I got very scared. And I started walking away. He said, were you walking away? And he pulled the hair out of my head and his hands. And I went to my uncle and he said, what are you doing here? You know, look, this man just grabbed you. Get out of here. I told you never to come. Whatever it is. She said, well, your wife told me that. She got the whatever it is. She came home that night. And she sat on her bed and she cried a whole night. I grew long hair because I loved my hair. And now I was, I was, I was defiled. I was totally defiled by this man. It's my fault. So she, that morning, after crying a whole night, she shaved off all her hair. She shaved off all her hair because of what happened to her. She said, and I've been asking forgiveness from Hashem since I'm 14 years old. That I let my hair grow that long that this man should be able to be attracted to it and to touch my hair. So Levi said, what did you do with the hair you shaved off? Did you keep any? Did you keep any of it? She said, honestly, no, I burnt it. But there was one lock of blonde hair that I kept for myself. He said, and where is it? She said, in a box. He said, give me the box. She said, 
you know that my husband, I got married, and two years ago, my husband died. He didn't have a heart attack. He wasn't sick. And I know Hashem punished me because when I was 14, I wasn't sneers and I let my hair grow long and I was very into my hair. So he took my husband away. No sickness and no reason. So Levy said, listen to me. You did no Avera. You did nothing wrong. And your husband died because he was here for a certain amount of time and Hashem called him back. You're totally forgiven. Don't worry about what you did. You did nothing wrong. But give me that box. So he takes the box. Now you have to remember, he's already out of shore for hours. And he runs back with his guy to the shore. And he runs up to the bima, to the to And I'll read you from the, this is a true story by the way. It's a very famous, it happens to be a very famous story. So he tells, he tells the, um, he stood and turned to his gabai. Come, let us return to the shul, he said. We have what we need. When they returned, they found the shul packed with restless and curious people. It was very late. And they hadn't begun slichas. And Rav Levi Yitzhak was nowhere to be found. His sudden entrance caused quite a stir. Okay. Rav, Ye- Rav Levi Yitzhak put on his talus and stepped up to the holy ark. He threw open the doors and placed the old woman's cardboard box inside. Master of the universe, he cried out. Is there another nation as holy as your Jewish people? I came here now straight from the simple home of a simple Jewish widow. When she was 14 years old, an orphan living with her uncle and aunt, she had to go into a tavern to see her uncle, and vile hands of a drunkard touched her hair. A fleeting touch, for she immediately fled. It was not her fault. She was completely innocent. Yet she had suffered feelings of guilt all these years, because she was afraid that somehow she allowed herself to be defiled. She cried rivers of tears and poured out her heart to you with innumerable supplications. She even blamed her husband's untimely death on her supposed sin. And what does she want? Only that you, her father in heaven, should accept her repentance and forgive her. He took the box containing the lock of the old woman's hair and held it aloft. Master of the universe, he cried out, who else is like your people, Israel? Don't they deserve your compassion and forgiveness? And then holding the box in his hand, confident that the harsh decree had been averted, he started to say slichus. That year, there was no plague. And there was no death in his, in Baditchev. Hine ba'ohel. If you want to know where my Sarah is, he said to the Malachim, you want to know where the mother of the Jewish nation is, ayei sarishtecha, hine ba'ohel. She's a tsnua. She doesn't mix with men. She doesn't talk with men. She is in the ohel. The great, 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 great grandmother of Mashiach ben David. This girl, this woman, what, what Rav Levi and all the Torah that they learned and fasted and Tehillim and Davening could not do, <coughs> could not break this Gzera, a little teeny box with some blonde hair in it, could do. There's one other story which is not as pretty, but just to show you the level of where a woman can reach, and of course, I would not advise you to do what she did, but it's a story that I said about six years ago. And when I read it, um, my house in Eretz Yisrael, even though I'm a Kayan, is next to the offices of the Hever Kadisha. One of the most famous stories of the Hever Kadisha of Yerushalayim is the following story. One day, a man walks into the office with a wooden box, a little teeny wooden box. And he says to the Hever Kadisha, I want you to take this box and I want you to bury it in the holiest, next to the holiest kever grave on Harazesim, which is the, the holiest graveyard that faces the Makam Hamigdash, that faces the Shari Rachman, where Leon is going to come in. And they're like, are you paying? Do you have a plot? Well, you can't just walk in it, and there's no body in there, that's for sure. It's a teeny little box. It's this big. What, what is it? He said, before you open the box, before you open the box, let me tell you what it is. This was a Russian man that came, Mavish just came from Russia, with his first stop was a Hever Kadisha. This is what he said. This is a famous story, Yushalayim's Hever Kadisha. Everyone knows the story. So you can imagine these guys are sitting there, they want us to bury this little wooden box, like what's in there, right? He says the following story. He says, I just came from Siberia. I was released 
for the Russian government. They let out a few people to to immigrate to Israel. And before I left, there's a woman. She's a doctor who's in Siberia. They put her there for life. She's never going to leave. She's going to die there. And she's really helpful. She's a Jewish woman. And she's really keeping a lot of people alive. She's mice and efforts for everybody. But the Russians specifically bury the Jews when they die in Siberia in non-Jewish graveyards. Specifically. Either they cremate them or they put them in a non-Jewish graveyard. When I found out that I was coming to Israel and I was immigrating, so I was very close to, I was very close to her. So one night she came to my apartment when she heard I was going to leave and she said, I want you to bring this wooden box to the Hever Kadisha. They should bury it on Hazasim with the holiest of the people. And I asked her, what's in the wooden box? And she picked up her left hand and the pinky of her hand was missing. What did she do? She cut off the pinky of her hand because she believed that when Tchias Mason comes, well, if you're cremated, there's nothing to do Tchias Mason with. And if you're in a Goyesha graveyard, there's a whole question if there'll be Tchias Mason in that graveyard. So she cut, she's a surgeon, she's a doctor. So she cut off her finger and said, if you bury my finger in the kever, in the grave on Hazasim, it says that any limb, right? Any limb that's buried, that's where Tchias Mason is going to come from, that person. Sometimes people are on a fire, you don't find much left, whatever it is. But if there's one organ, one limb left, and you bury it, that person will come back reincarnation. So she sent this finger. Because she knows that the Russians are going to either cremate her or put her with Gaia. So please bury this finger. They opened up the box. Kachaya, there was a pinky in it. And they took it. And they say that that Leviah, for that finger, one of the biggest Leviahs that ever Yushalayim saw. And the Heber Kadisha told everyone that this is the finger of a woman who cut it off so it should have burial in a Jewish cemetery. The whole Yushalayim went. Leviah of a finger. That she's thinking that no matter how much I suffer, you got to make sure that I come back in Tchias Mason. That's someone who has a Muna. Now, Chas you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to cut off an organ to get it buried. It's not a question, halachically, if she did the right thing, for sure not. And you can't cut off your fingers. You're not allowed to. But it wasn't a question of halacha. Maybe she wasn't knowledgeable. It didn't matter to her. I need a part of me buried in Israel. So, I know they're not going to let me be buried in Israel. Send my finger... And the famous story is that, that the Levi was so big, and when people said, like, who are you burying? And what are you burying? They're like, a finger. <laughs> We're burying a finger. But when they heard the mysterious nephesh that she had, they, it was a huge Leviah. So people can reach a crazy level. But everybody has to ask, everyone, everyone has to answer the question, what are they going to answer when they ask, where is Sorry, your wife. On Facebook? On the phone? Watching a movie? Where is she? What is she doing? Each person has to ask that to themselves. Where am I? And the answer that we have to drive to is, she's in her house with her children and her husband. She's bringing up a good family, a healthy family. She's putting Torah and mitzvahs into that family, into the... Into the it's the, biggest, it's, the, it's, the, it's the biggest compliment, as Rashi says, that they asked Avraham Avinu because he, they knew that he'd be very proud to answer the question. So they wanted him to hear, my wife said Snua. And that was Sari Menu. And that's this week's Pasha, just a little teeny piece of it, a little piece, a little light of it. And of course, what happens later on? The end of the Pasha, we have a Kedas Yitzchak. This was the mother of Yitzchak. He named Ba'el. She was in oil. So she brought up a Yitzchak who said, Tati, tie me down so that I don't move. How do you have a kid on that level? If he named Ba'el, if the mother is Ba'el, where she's supposed to be, then you can have a kid that says, tie me down so that I don't move. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the, the point of that whole thing. And if you get to look into it a little deeper, you see, because she answered that, because she was at Snua, we have Mashiach. 
And now he wants to know why we don't have a Mashiach is because the last place you're going to find the woman is Baal the last place you're going to find the girl today is where she's supposed to be she's everywhere she's not supposed to be I'm talking about myself, I'm not a girl, but whatever I'm not giving anyone here Musa I'm not telling anyone here that you're not where you're supposed to be but Lamaisa, we look today where we are, where are we? what's the answer? Hashem asked us so so where are you? where have you been all day? Shaykhullah, where have you been all day? at night, Hashem asks you that question when your neshama comes up the Rav Chaim Vital says you come in front of, every night when your neshama goes up you're coming from Bezin Shalm Island. They want to know where were you today? And where are you going tomorrow? And how many of our Nishamas can say, where was I today? Well, oh hell, I was learning. I was saying to Hillim. I was doing my job. I was making money to help my husband. I was bringing up my children. I said Modani with them. I said Hamalach HaGoel with them. A mother has the craziest power. The famous story with Rabbi Silver after the Holocaust. So the, 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 the church took a lot of kids because when the Jewish people were running, the only place that was saved was, was putting them in a nunnery, you know, where the nuns were. And, and many Jewish kids to this day are Christians, but they're really Jewish. They don't know because their parents went to, they were little kids. They were one year old. They just gave it to the nun because they knew they would be able to live. Two year olds. And, and, and they, they never told them they were Jewish. So after the war, Rabbi Silver came back to all these countries. <laughs> that these monasteries had all these Jewish kids and it's a very famous story that he would go to the monastery and he would ask the, top, the, the one that was running it do you have any Jewish kids? I'm here to collect the Jewish kids Jewish kids? we don't have any Jewish kids you sure? no, we, no one dropped off any Jewish kids here he said, you give me permission to go into the dining room? sure how's he going to know who's Jewish and who's not? he goes into the dining room, it's a famous story uh, mama should cry when I hear the story and he got up on a chair. It's a true story. He went from monastery to monastery. He got up on a chair. And he, no, wasn't Shema Yisrael. No. He put his hand over his eyes like this. Hamalach Hagoel. All of a sudden you saw a bunch of kids putting their hands like this. Hamalach Hagoel. Jewish, 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 Jewish. Every mother that put her child to sleep with Hamalach Hagoel saved, even though they were killed in the Holocaust, saved her children, that they should go out of the Holocaust and be Jewish, because she spent five minutes at night saying Hamalach and Kriyashma with her children. And the ones that didn't, those kids didn't know what he was saying, they didn't put their hands on their eyes, and they were left behind, because no one knew that they were Jewish. And, and the rabbi, he wrote, thousands of Jewish kids were saved that way. Just by putting their hands on their eyes and saying Hamalach HaGoel, because their mother spent five minutes. Or Torah, 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 and the kids said, See, no, Moshe, you're Jewish, you're Jewish, you're Jewish, you're Jewish. But the people who didn't give the time, they were too busy, and they didn't give the time, there was five minutes to their children. Those children were lost forever. They're walking around as Christians today. They don't even know they're Jewish because the mother didn't spend five minutes in the Ohel. She didn't sit by the kids' bed and say Hamalach and Kriyashma, and when he woke up, say Moda'ani with him and wash his hands, Alatilasadayim. Down the line, you could save your child's Judaism. Five minutes. She's at home taking care of her kids. That is the greatest answer for her and the greatest answer for her husband. To hear, my wife is at Snua. We all want our wives to be modest. We don't want our wives out there. We all want to be able to say, not that she has the best children but that she's a modest person and she's taking care of my kids and she's bringing them up in the way of Hashem. It's the greatest compliment to a woman. After 120 years on your tombstone, it will not say, oh, here lies Sarah Batya who had the best children in Bottle Park. It's not going to say that. Or was the prettiest girl in town. It's not going to say that either. Or the best dresser. It's not going to say that either. If you go to a graveyard and you read what's on women's gravestones, that's what's important. Because the unimportant stuff they don't put on your gravestone. How many friends you have on Facebook? For sure not. <laughs> so what do they put on there? Tznua, Balas Chesed, took care of her mishpacha, supported her husband and, every, and what he's doing in Tyra, brought up Tamidei Chachamim, was an Isha Tznua, Balas Chesed. That's on most of the stones that you're going to see. It's not going to say anything else. So a rabbi said, if you want to know what's important in life, read tombstones 
It doesn't say he had the best basketball shot. He had a lot of money. He drove a BMW. He looked great. He was thin. He was athletic. He had 150 people working for him. You'll never find a tombstone that says any of that. So it must be that what's important is really something that we write on the stone after life. So if you read it, it's, she was a good balabasta, she was a balas chesed, her house was open to everybody, she was modest, she was sweet, she was a balas chesed, most of the stones you'll find that on, that she was an eshes chayel, and a balas chesed, and other things from eshes chayel that she got up in the middle of the night, she made sure her children were warm. Hine ba'ayel is a big compliment. And it brought, it brought Mashiach. And that's what we need to think about, especially after such a hurricane. We need to, maybe if we have more in the oil, then our oil wouldn't be destroyed. Because if you're in the right place, not saying that the people's houses that went down, they're bad people. Because it says right away, when there's a Magaifa, the good and the bad go together. So the Russia's house goes down and the Tzadik's house goes down. There's no difference. When the Sultan is let out in the Yetzirah, the Mashkis is let out, hurricane, tornado, earthquake, disease, when he's let out, free, he takes everybody. He has a free hand, the good go with the bad. The shuls went down with the churches. No difference. No difference. When there's a magefa, there's a flood, there is no difference. So we as Jews, we are the soul of the world. After such a catastrophe that just happened, we have to look at it that it didn't happen to the world, it happened to us. And even if we live in Flatbush and nothing happened, and you were lucky that nothing happened, it happened to us. Because there's a shul in Farakaway that every Sefer Torah got wet and got ruined, and now they have to bury them, it happened to us. If there's a shul where there's four feet of water, and there's svarim and tefillin and talasim floating in that water, it's a holocaust. And it happened to us. And we need to go home, and we need to think about what we can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. And one of the biggest things we can do is to be a tznua and to be modest. We should all have a tzlacha and bracha. We should take a see in this chus of the Ishan Sikaniyais that are tznuim, that we should take a see Mashiach Medavid, who was born from such a thing. We should all be see him in our generation. Tzlacha. Thank you for coming and braving the uh, situation. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.